Good morning, everybody. Let's find our seats. I'd like to call up Sarah. Today we're reading from James 4. <clears throat> James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in every season, through the highs and the lows, through the long days and the short days, from solstice to solstice, from equinox to equinox, you are king. That when the times are dark, you are the, the brightness to us. That when the world is growing, you are the one who gives us good things. That during the times where our hearts are dark, you are our joy and our peace. That during the times where our hearts are bright, you laugh with us and dance with us. We thank you, Father, that in every season of the year, of every season of the soul, you are our king. We ask, Lord, that today we would be able to rest in you, that we would be able to uh, approach you with the humility that we should have, and that as we are humbled under your mighty hand, that you would lift us up. We thank you, Lord, for all of your love which you are pouring out on us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I find most striking about uh, Christmas imagery, the ideas that, are, that surround the way that our culture views Christmas is how much of it is filled with candy. The idea that, that, that everything has been covered in, uh, in candy canes and sugar plums, which no are not plums, they are literally little pieces of crystallized sugar that look like plums. So uh, you can go back to saying, ew, what is, even is that? The, uh, to the aforementioned hot chocolate. There's so much of the imagery that surrounds Christmas. Go and look at any over-decorated house. And around us, trust me, there are lots of over-decorated houses. There, there's a higher concentration of them, I think, around where like Kevin and Michael and those folks live. But there are a... Uh, you'll, you'll see so much of the, it is filled with the... Uh, the theme of Christmas is the time of the year where we overdose on added sugar. I didn't see Elf when Elf first came out, but uh, 
having seen it more as an older adult, uh, not that I'm really an older adult, but I, I, w- I would think I was for sure in my mid-30s before I saw Elf, and immediately I discovered a kindred soul in Buddy. Those of you who know me know that I have a hard time, like the only way I can stay away from Oreos is to not have them. I'm the sort of person that notoriously can drink a two-liter bottle of Coke in one sitting. I have to not have sugary things in order to not consume sugary things. Like my form of self-control is denial because it, because it, it rarely involves stopping halfway through. And this is so easily what Christmas can become for us. It becomes like Thanksgiving was the main course, and now on to Christmas. And it's the time of year where our whole hearts can easily be sugary. Whether it's the, whether it's the literal diet of, you know, sweet things, or whether it's just the idea of, of singing happy, somewhat somewhat thought, sometimes thoughtful, sometimes mindless Christmas music, in, indulging in the sort of the feeling and the atmosphere, but allowing it not to go more than skin deep. Well, this is a time where I can feel really nice. On the other hand, but, and this is a form of uh, selfishness. This is a form of saying, what I, my life is about me feeling good. I just love walking around, and maybe you love getting things for people, in which case Christmas is really happy for you. Maybe you can be pushed to the existential despair of ever finding something for everyone on your list. I had one particular aunt and uncle, I was just like really pushed to the limit trying to figure out like how are we going to, what are we going to get this person this year, and Vita and I were just like, like really racking our brains over it. But, but so much of the Christmas season can be about, I want to feel good, how can I feel good? And because so much of our culture is about selling us stuff, right, they'll present to us things that will make us feel good. And if you're willing to pay for it, the, the, the promise is we will feel good. And it keeps all of the attention squarely on me. Not even really us per se. Sometimes you'll get this messaging in Christmas time about, uh, you know, Christmas is just about this. We are all together, and we, we should be giving, and that's good. But there's this, but there's this promise that still all of these feelings will be nice, and things will be uh, happy. And James, oh, freaking James. I shouldn't, shouldn't call him frickin', he's holier, I'm sure, than I. But, it's, uh, but, but uh, James, or, or Jacob, if you're being more serious about his name, the, the brother of Jesus, is always calling us to say, well, okay, would you settle for being merely happy? Would you settle for mere feeding your pleasures? If all of your pleasures were fed, would you be living a good life? Or would you still be missing something? Would there be some element of true joy, true fulfillment that would be gone from your, that, that would be, um, you would, you, the only way to find it is by laying down the pursuit of pleasure. And in fact, what we're going to find this week as we read him is he says that oftentimes what leads us into conflict and strife and drama is, of all things, the pursuit of mere happiness. And he says, as we, t- as we begin to turn away from this, the pride of seeking myself, of saying, I am number one, what I have is the best, that's when we can begin to experience true connectedness, true joy, connection with one another, and most importantly, connection with God. So if we can pick it up together, let's turn to James 4. And James 4 has a really interesting structure because he points to two different forms that pride can take, and in the middle, he points to the solution. So in the beginning, he talks about pride as the pursuit of pleasure. This is, I have to say, probably the the kind of pride which feels more natural to me. 
the, the, the feeling, the, the, the one that says, I want to get what I want. And I want to get what I want physically. I want to get what I want mentally. Sometimes a, per, a person comes into church and says, I want to get what I want spiritually, which is a little, little weird compared to the others, but it's, it's there. The, this self-centered idea that says, I want what I want. Give it to me now, right? And you will we'll see the word pleasure pop up twice in this passage. If you're reading ESV like I do, they translate it kind of poorly as passions. But really, the word should be pleasures. It's hedoni, which is the word that, of course, becomes hedonism in American, in, uh, in English. The pursuit of pleasure for its own sake. Just give me another cup of hot chocolate, thank you. That's that, that, that kind of pursuit of pleasure. And then the second half of today's passage talks about uh, th this idea of asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that you should forgo pleasure now for, gr for greater uh, and more lasting benefits later. That, and what that might look like, if you're a Christian ascetic, might mean that you are a, a monk living out in the wilderness, not bothering to cook your food, forgoing marriage and comfortable clothing in order to, you know, pursue prayer and holiness and things like that. But let's be honest, asceticism exists in our culture too. The person who says, I'm going to, I'm going to work for, for 10 years as a waitress so that I can try to get my first big acting gig is practicing asceticism. You may not realize it, but that person is saying, you know what, I'm going to be so motivated and I'm going to live such a disciplined and regimented lifestyle that I will achieve all of my goals by forgoing pleasure and, and doing what needs to be done in order to, get a better, in order to get a better result later on. This very high-achieving sort of like, I can discipline myself, I can do it feeling. And we're going to see as we read on that this is also a form of pride. And we're going to see in the middle of the passage how the Lord is going to deal with us in both of these things. So he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your pleasures are at war within you? In other words, he's saying the reason why his listeners, his audience, are having so much drama in their community is because people are really interested in getting what they want. I once heard, uh, I once heard a, an older pastor say, if you ever want to, to split your church, start a building project. And the reason why he said that is, uh, there, are, there, are the pressures, there are the usual pressures of money and faith, but there's also a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be built. And when you have stuff that needs to be built, people have different visions of what it should look like. They say, hmm, should we have pews like a traditional church? Should we have those sort of half-pew, half-folding chair things like we have upstairs in the sanctuary? Should we have no chairs and just have these like foldable chairs that we move out? How should we set up the sanctuary? Should we set up the sanctuary in like a half-moon shape, like which would I, I really like? Or should we have it facing the front of the room? Or should we have like the pastor in the middle and everything in a ring around? Like how should we set up the main space? And people will form parties and fight tooth and claw to get what they want. What color should the curtains be? There, and there are churches that have literally split over the color of the curtains. Now, a church that splits over the color of the curtains, it's not the curtains that are the problem. You know what the problem is? It's the fact that there are pleasures at war within you, plural, within you guys. There is a seeking of what do I want and if you have 10 different people seeking, what do I want, then you're going to have conflict because different people will want different things. People say, hey guys, let's have lunch together after service. And you'll find out real quick how humble your group is, right? Because if everyone is filled with pride and they all think they know the best place and the cheapest place and the most efficient place, then you'll have conflict. So... He says, this is what causes all this conflict among you, that your pleasures are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. He doesn't mean there were really people in the church like stabbing each other to death. He means that there were feuds developing. There was hatred developing. People wanted to get what they wanted, and those who denied it to them, 
They viewed them as enemies. Said, you're keeping me from getting what I want. And, you know, hang around people long enough in a church, and this will be a temptation. There will be people who will block you from getting what you want. And if you allow yourself to listen to the voice of Satan, you will eventually end up in conflict with these people. You'll say, man, I really would love to be closer to that person if only that other person wasn't hogging all of their attention, right? And before you know it, you have a full-blown, uh, you have a full-blown drama party. So he's saying we, ha- we have to be on the watch for this, for this particular kind of pride, this particular kind of self-centeredness that's about attaining all of, our passion, all of our pleasures. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not, and at fir- our first time reading this, you might say, well, what does that one thing have to do with the other thing? First, he's talking about covetousness, about our relationship to one another, and then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Consider the following. What might covetousness look like in our, uh, in our church, in our time, in our social circle? Well, and I'm sorry, I'm going to offend some people in saying this. FOMO is a sort of covetousness. God help us all. When we see our, our friends hanging out on social media and we go, they didn't invite me. What we're really, like, I didn't even know that this was happening and there you all are bowling. You know, what, what, what this really comes down to, I'm not pointing the finger at you. It, I know it sounds like that, but I'm not. So, and, and, but when we find ourselves doing that, and let me tell you, there were times, like, I've been in Blueprint a long time now. There were times early on where I felt this way. I would see people on, on my social media, which was a different social media back then because it was like the Stone Age, but, it was, but, but there were times where I felt this, so I'm, I'm not an alien to this phenomenon, but this is covetousness. This is saying, I see other people feeling connected, and I wish I could feel connected too, Right? That's really what FOMO is. It's saying, I see those people, they look like they are loving one another. I want to be loved. I want to be able to give love as well. And since that's not what I'm experiencing, I have this covetousness, which is, and it's not, and you can see it's not a wrong, it's not a wrong feeling to feel lonely in that situation. But it is, what is wrong about it is when that loneliness begins to turn into bitterness and resentment. When it says, how dare you not invite me? You might as well have slapped me in the face. This is a calculated insult. And you know, we have an, we, there's an evil one that's really trying to destroy us. And if he knows that this is something we're susceptible to, he'll just keep feeding it. Until you've gone like, you've broken bad and you're, you've gone full uh, Disney villain here with your with the, the anger that's built up inside you. So, so then what is the solution to something like this, this kind of covetousness that will drive us to the dark side? The answer is, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And then you go, oh, wait, Pastor David, so are you telling me that when I feel FOMO, I should like pray? Yes, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if what we feel is, oh man, I really wish I was loved, and I don't feel loved, and I covet because I see these other people who I think feel loved, whether or not they actually do, that's a whole other question, then I can say, Lord, I want to feel loved. I want to feel connected. I'm not there. I'm lonely. Help? Can, can you connect me? We have not because we, do, we don't have because we do not ask. He says there's no reason why we should need to, be, to resent our neighbor when we are looking to our neighbor to provide for us things we should be seeking for God to provide. It's like, it's like if I give out, if, if I, give out uh, if I distribute food to my kids 
and they spend their time like trying to take it from one another when there's still food in my hand I could be giving them. They're like, hey, look, guys, like there's plenty here. There's no reason you should be trying to take stuff from one another, right? And yet, this is so much of what we try to do. We look to one another in anger and in bitterness. You know, you haven't met my expectations. When in reality, we could be looking to God to meet all of our needs. And he will connect us in ways that make sense. The Bible says he puts the lonely in families. I particularly love that verse. So if we can trust him that he can connect us and he can set us up, now this doesn't mean we have no responsibility to actually like go out there and talk to people. If you're always like, but I want people to approach me first, that also might be a little bit self-centered. <laughs> that that we want to be the that we always want to be the one that is sought out rather than the ones who do the seeking. But that is uh, but this is a this is where he's going. James is saying, instead of trying to fight each other over your passions, we should first be going with these things over to, over to the Lord himself. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. So he goes, and when you, when you are going to God, he's saying, often you're, you're going to God with prayers that are coming from the shallowest part of your soul. They're coming from the shallowest part of your soul. Well, I wish I could go out with everyone, but I don't have money. So God, give me lots of money and I'll be happy. I'm sure that'll work. And the Lord is saying, is this even really what you want? Like, what you want is just to, to pursue these pleasures to pursue, to make sure that I feel better. I don't want to ever feel like this again. Therefore, Lord, please, um, change, please change my situation. And he's saying, man, you just don't get it. The kingdom is not about friends having fun on a Sunday night. The kingdom is about connections. It's about loving God, about loving one another, about being able to go to the deepest parts of who we are, and being able to meet the Lord and receive transformation there. And, and so much of the time, our focus is put on, do people in all of these pictures seem happy? When in reality, a, a lot of the times, if that's what we're, even, even if that's what we're pursuing when we are together, right? If we're saying, hey guys, let's go out and have a good time together, we go, ah, ha, 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 ha. And you come home at the end of the night, and what have you gained, really? Are you, is your life better? Or did you just have some hours of forgetfulness where you forgot about the, big, the main problems of your week? James is like, come on, guys. You're not asking God, and you're going to others. But when you do ask God, man, what you're asking him is so shallow. You're just seeking more of your pleasures, but you're seeking them from him rather than from the, from the world. You're, you're writing letters to the North Pole, asking Santa for ponies and gumdrops and, and all of the other things that we want, right? And, and if, kind of like the, the old story about how if your worship songs sound like they could have been, uh, sounds like they could have been written about your, about your girlfriend, you might have a problem. If your prayer life sounds like it could be a letter to the North Pole, you also might have a problem. Amen. So, so James is saying we have to reevaluate our motivations. What makes what, what is driving us? Where we are going? Like I said, James is pretty brutal. Like this, he he likes to to cut past the outer niceties and politenesses, and strike right to the heart of who we are and what we're attempting. He says, "You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Way to be diplomatic, buddy." Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you've never done a fandom, you may not know how this works. Okay? There are mutually incompatible fandoms. One of the ones that others who are not me have made me aware of is the enmity between the fandoms of Taylor Swift and Katy Perry. 
Such, yes, such to be a fan of the one is to be an enemy of the other. By nature, okay? If you're like, but I like both their music, you're missing the point. I also have, wonder what's up with you, but there's, but you, uh, but if you like both of them, you're going to have problems. There, there are and there are many, many fandoms like this. Um, to be a, a fan of the Jets, as I am, and to be a fan, of, uh, to be a fan of the New England Patriots, means enmity. If you are a friend of one, you must be an enemy of the other. The only way to be able to be friends with those people is to is to choose to jettison in some way your fandom of the team, which is largely why I've distanced myself with, with sports, because it was having a a negative impact on my soul, <laughs> okay? Uh, I had to throw it away. I no longer follow sports to a very large extent, largely because sports is making me a worse person because they were people I wanted to be friends with that, I, that were being ma made by enemy by sports. It, it, it's exactly this, isn't it? There are some things that just push each other apart. You can't hold them both at the same time. It's impossible. There is no, there is no dual citizenship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And that's, and that's why he's saying, to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God and vice versa. So, and when he says the world, he's not talking about like this material land, because God created this material land, okay? So what is he saying when he talks about the world? The world is the, the, is the normal way that our fallen culture does business. The world is the normal way that our fallen culture does business. Um, it's the part of our culture that says, you are the most important. Follow your dreams. Be yourself. Yes, I'm alone, but I'm alone and free. This is, the, this is the American way of thinking. This is what it means to be a friend of the world, right? And the Lord doesn't want you to be alone and free. He says, that's just slavery by another name, right? People, I joke about this, but every girl wants to be Elsa, but they always forget that Elsa freezes the world in, in perma-winter during that song. And if you live that attitude, you, your life will end up being frozen in perma-winter. There, there is no life in pursuing doing your own thing. It, it, it leads nowhere. It is sterile. It, it, it's a path that leads to death. So he says, well, well oh, man, I don't want to be an enemy of God. So how, do I, so how do I avoid pursuing the way of this world? How do I avoid living a life which is centered merely on doing what will make me feel good? He says, or do you suppose it's no, to no purpose that the, spirit, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. So he makes a spirit dwell in us, right? What does that mean precisely? Well, when God creates Adam and Eve in the garden, right, he sculpts them out of clay. Oh, Adam, 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 I made you out of clay, right? To kind of play on the whole Hanukkah theme of our, our current season. But after he makes him out of clay, if he only made him out of clay, how would we be that different from, let's say, oh, sheep? Sheep aren't very thoughtful or philosophical. They just kind of do what seems right to them in the moment. If they want to eat, they eat. If they want to sleep, they sleep. If they want to mate, they do what they got to do and find it. They just live. But, but humans are different. God has, it says that he opened the, 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 the nose of Adam and he breathed life into him. He made his spirit dwell in him. And, and Adam became something much greater than just a sheep. He was made in the image of God. He was capable of loving and being loved, of creating, of going deep, of, of laughing and crying over things that weren't just food. We became not just physical beings, but physical spiritual beings at the same time. And this is what the Lord yearns for. He yearns for this side of us. He's jealous for this side of us. He sees us and he goes, yo, man, you can be so much greater than a sheep. Why live as if you were a sheep, just seeking food and sleep and mating? 
Like, why not go deeper? Why not have stronger relationships? Why not reach out to me? Call me sometime, maybe. And this is, the, this is, how we, this is what the Lord really wants from us. And he yearns jealously for that relationship with us. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how is it that we get in right with God? How is it that we get close to God? How do we move from God's naughty list to his nice list? How do we go there? It says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we come to him with humility, when we say, yo, God, it's not about me. I'm not the most important, I'm not the most important thing in my own world. I, I want to be part of what you're doing. But, it do, but what you're doing doesn't have to be the story of my life. I am not the main character of the kingdom of God. Once we come to him with this sort of humility as a supplicant rather than as a person with a list of demands, this is when we're able to experience real life. And this is when it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit to God Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Those of you who know me know that I quote this, like, all the time. I have to quote James 4, 7 probably at least once a week. It's the key to all spiritual warfare. It's the key to victory in life. It's such a big deal. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. You know what it takes to submit to God? Humility. Have you ever had to submit to anybody? Anyone here ever had to submit? Probably my favorite example of what, of what submission can mean comes from, well, grappling, from martial arts. If you submit, commonly called tapping out, it means that someone has you in a position that you know full well you won't recover from. If they keep it up, you're going to be unconscious or you're going to have a joint pulled out of joint. So you tap. Or you might say out loud, tap, if you can't tap, probably usually with about that sense of urgency. And you're like, you got me, man. And you know why, the, you know why I like this, this picture of submission? Because there are some people who would rather go to sleep. There are some people who'd rather have their arm broken rather than saying, yo, man, you got me in class. They'd rather, they'd rather try to get out of it to the last second, right up until there, they, they find themselves in serious trouble because they just do not want to submit. Submitting hurts, it wounds our ego. Saying, hey, I can't do this by myself, would you help me? Uh, getting real for a second, there's a real thing in the Asian American community about, I don't want to be a burden to people. Any of you ever said that? Uh, I don't want to share about this, I don't want people to know, I don't want to be a burden to people. And we like forget that passage that says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That like we're supposed to be burdens to one another sometimes so that we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And maybe one of the reasons why we don't feel connected to one another, the reasons why we so easily feel lonely around one another is that we aren't practicing bearing one another's burdens. And maybe if, pe if people knew our nonsense, and, they, and, and, uh, and we knew theirs, and we had practiced keeping one another uh, and, and burying one another up in the midst of it, we would feel less lonely and more, like we, and more like part of a community of love and a kingdom that will last forever. There is this sense in which we have to, we have to lay down our ego. We have to unlearn everything that Nike and Disney have taught us about stand up for yourself where we have to kind of lower our shoulders and lower our nose a little bit and say, you know what? I'm, you know, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be someone who is in a low position doing the right thing, following God, than be someone who succeeds according to Nike's way of, of living life. And it's a, it's a hard thing for us to learn, especially if we belong to the second kind of Pride, the pride of asceticism and accomplishment. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Now that's a promise if ever I heard one. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now time out for a second. When you read that passage, it's easy to go, yeah, listen to, listen to James being so like hardcore. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your minds, you double-minded. Because we would like to just be able to be like polemical in our normal way of speaking and be able to be like, you are so double-minded. And meanwhile, we're going, oh, ha, ha, I, sound just like, I sound just like the book of James. But if you do that, you're kind of missing the point. Like James, yes, James can be very direct, but his way of speaking is always aiming to get you somewhere. If you need to cleanse your hands, what does that say about the state of your hands? They are dirty. Anyone, if you have kids, you know why you need to cleanse your hands, right? Maybe even if you don't have kids, you, might, you still know why you need to cleanse your hands. Because if, you if they are dirty, there are times where if you go right into pursuing pleasure, if you go right into eating, let's say, and you haven't washed your hands, you know that you will eat sickness upon yourself. And James doesn't want us ultimately to be harmed. And this is why he's willing to speak these truths to us, so that we can actually be able to receive stuff from God without being destroyed by it. It says, cleanse your hearts and, um, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What, do, what does it mean to be double-minded? To be double-minded means, hmm, I really want to pass my classes. I really want to get my work done. But I also really want to stay up all night and watch whatever thing I'm binging on Netflix. Right? This is being double-minded. It's when you have two desires pulling you in opposite directions and you aren't willing to commit to either one. That's what it means to be double-minded. And anyone who's ever lived a double-minded life knows that you will end up being torn apart by such things. You will not be able to succeed and enjoy either category. If you try to pursue two things, you lose them both. Try dating people, two people at the same time and you'll know right away where I'm going with this. You will not end up as a happy person. You will not be twice as happy, okay? You will end up not happy at all, being double-minded. And yet, we, we laugh when we think of it this way because we know intuitively that this is how it works. You can't pursue two enemies at once and expect to end up with two friends. And yet, we want to pursue pleasure and pursue the kingdom of God at the same time. We want to be holy and we want to be, well, pleasured. And it just doesn't work. And at some point, we have to commit. And we have to say, and I, I, one of what I implore you that when we do commit, that committing to God will always end up, with the, with the, in the end, with a more fulfilling and joyful experience than committing to pleasure. Committing to pleasure is a, is a, is a road that leads nowhere. Committing to God is a road that leads to eternal life. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Why would we be wretched and mourn and weep? Is it just because James, again, likes to be all fire and brimstone? No, it's because the process of purifying your double mind will involve being wretched and pure and weeping. Withdrawal isn't just something that happens for physical addictions. Withdrawal is something that happens when you say, screw it, I'm going, to, I'm going to purify my entertainment life. I'm going to choose to say no to all of the, to all of the, uh, in, all of the entertainments I've been feeding for the last 10 years, 15, 20 years of my life. I'm going to choose to say no. Yes, it will involve, at times, mourning and weeping and wretchedness. Anyone who's tried an extended fast knows what this is like. You have felt wretched at some point. One of, the, uh, one of the holiest folks whose, whose writings I've ever read, a, a fellow by the name of Jerome, lived back in the, the fourth century or so. He, I read him write about his time spent as being a monk. And he basically talked about it as being miserable because he spent all of his time lusting. He had lived a very uh, immoral life beforehand. He spent all of his time lusting, and here he is like in a desert. And he just felt like he, like at a time where he felt like he should be becoming more holy, he felt like he was just being tempted all the time. And then constantly having all this temptation and like not knowing what to do with it, he was just like, oh, like wretched. 
And often this is what purifying your mind feels like. It doesn't feel real good. You're like, oh, I'm becoming holier. Praise the Lord. No, it's like, oh, man, was life always this boring? Because we're having to unlearn all of the thing, all of the ways that, that, that sin has done to our soul. We're having to detox from all of the damage we've taken pursuing these other, pursuing these other loves. And if that feels like withdrawal, it's because sin is losing its mastery over our life. That addiction we've had to sin all of this time is beginning to finally lose its hold. So, although it may never be fun to say, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom, that doesn't sound like good stuff. You're like, oh, hey, Merry Christmas. My laughter is mourning. My, my joy is gloom. Gloom to the world, right? No, it's not like that. Why? Because in the end, this is the preparation for true joy. Until we have experienced until we have experienced turning the joy of TikTok to the gloom of boredom, we cannot appreciate what joy comes to us with the arrival of Christ in the manger. Until we, until we have said no to the mere pleasures of this world, we do not know what it's like to say yes to the pleasures of God. So finally, he says, do not speak evil. Oh, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Great passage. What, what is all this about? Is it about, I must feel bad? No. It's about humbling ourselves. It's about saying, Lord, I do not want to be the center of my own life. Please come in and be the center. Come in and deliver me. Come in and help me. And then he goes on and he talks about judging your brother. And he comes in and he talks about people who brag about their future. And you're like, well, wait a minute. What does this thing have to do with those other things, right? Like, I understood the pleasure thing. What's going on with this whole thing about, like, achievement? Why does judging your brother so much into this? It's because, James knows, there is, a, there is another kind of person in the church, and this is the kind of person who says, oh, great, this message isn't for me. After all, I never pursue my pleasures. I'm too busy working. Oh, great, I never pursue my pleasures. Look at how much I have saved up for the future. I'm secure. Oh, great. I never spend time indulging in entertainment. I, I'm too busy building up my marvelous life. And of course, James is saying, look, look, you high achiever, this is also pride. And you also need to lay it down. And it's leading you into judgment. And because, and because in this judgment, you are choosing to be judge, instead of submitting to the one who is judge, you are like taking the Torah into your own hands. And what, what James is saying is he's saying, look, man, he goes, you're not going to like it. What happens if you stand up to be the judge of Torah? Because if you, if you point to the person next to you and says, aha, I am hardworking, you are lazy, then God is going to say, oh, really? Is that how this works? Okay, then. Let's talk about how lazy your prayer life is. And, and then he'll go, oh, uh, I didn't mean it that way. And he says, I know you didn't mean it that way, but that's what you were really saying all of this time. If we, if we wish to be judged by the standard of grace and not by the, the standard of strictness, it means we need to learn humility. It means we need to learn how to say, I am not the measure of all things. The people who come into church should not be measured against the standard of my life. Because the person who gives up pleasure to pursue their own will is just as self-centered as the person who seeks their own pleasure in everything. They're simply seeking a different pleasure than the person who's chasing the pleasures of the flesh. So let's choose today a better path. Let's choose today to humble ourselves under the hand of God that at the due time he might exalt us. Let's choose today to be the humble who he will give grace to and not the proud who he will honor, who the, the, and not the proud whom he will oppose. It would really stink if we came to church and sang all of our wonderful Christmas songs and then lived our lives as if we were Herod instead of Mary and Joseph. Let's choose to be those who are not living for the sake of mere 
pleasure-seeking, who are not living merely for the sake of feeling better about ourselves. Let's choose to look to him who is able to provide for every need, physical, emotional, spiritual. Let's come to him. Lord, how much we need you. How much we need you. Father, in our times of loneliness, we ask that you would be close to us, that we would be able to draw near to you and have you draw near to us. In our times of seasonal affective disorder, we ask, Lord, that, you would draw, that we would be able to draw near to you, that you would draw near to us, and you would give us light. And Lord, during the times where we, where we long to, to just grab control of the reins of our own life, where we think that we know what we're up to, where we think that we have plans for the future, when in fact we're just slapping a band-aid on the craziness and chaos of life, Lord, I ask that in that time you would, we would draw near to you and you would come near to us. Lord, we want to submit to you. And it's hard. Trusting isn't easy. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us today, this week, this month. That you would help us to learn to, to, to lay down our own self-centered ways of thinking and to be reoriented according to your love. Jesus chose to say no to the pleasures of the flesh. On the cross, he was offered um, wine, a, a mild anesthetic, to make his experience just a little bit more bearable, to feel just a little bit better. And he said no. He refused to drink it. He would not dull any of the pain that he would suffer for the sake of winning for the sake of winning us all back to him. His love conquered his desire for self-preservation. He was willing to be poured out. On the way to the cross, Jesus met a band of women who were weeping for him, who were, who were going, oh no, not you, Jesus, Jesus. And in that moment, he saw them and he had compassion upon them. And during a time where he could have uh, reveled in self-pity, where he could have said, yes, that's right, weep for me. And he could have called for more and more of their attention. And, and the slight comfort that he would have of not dying alone. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. And in this moment, he spoke of the coming judgment that was coming upon them. And he had compassion upon them. He knew in the moment where all of creation was all about Jesus, Jesus was not all about Jesus. He had time for the thief on the cross. This day you'll be with me in paradise. He had time for his mother, who he entrusted to the Apostle John. As we receive together the broken body of Jesus, may we have this same attitude, looking to love others, 
and not to be fixated on ourselves. And as we drink this, the poured out blood of Jesus, let us remember that ultimately this path will lead us to more joy and more fulfillment than all of the self-seeking in the world ever could. So if you want to begin to purify your hearts, you double-minded, right here alongside me, (laughs) if you want to begin to purify your hearts and cleanse your hands, then you've come to the right place. And this table is for you. So if you want to start on the process of wretchedness and weeping and gloom, then let's come and receive together from the table of the Lord. Let's come. Lord, how great your love for us is. So much greater than all the pleasures of this world. So much greater than all the pursuits of our minds. So much greater than, than any of the mere things that we chase after. You're the best. Would you take us deeper? Would you help us to, 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 to care for you more? Would you, would you pare away the mere rind of our lives, the, 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 the shininess, the wax that we put to, uh, to make us look better? And would you help us, Lord, to come near and actually know you and gain life? We ask, Father, that you would show us more of your, your strength and that we would be really and completely changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Putting ourselves aside, let's, let's push our minds together to the appreciation of Jesus and let's sing together. Father, this week, I ask that you would help us that you would help us, Lord, to, to strip away all of the, the things that we use to cover over our own life, the pleasure-seeking, the pain-killing, the veneer of control. And Lord, that you would bring us to you naked, humble, in need, and that we would be able to come to you there to obtain what we need, eternal life, joy forever. So, Lord, would we be seen by you? Would we be seen by one another? That we would be able to be transformed and brought into true joy. We choose to prepare ourselves for your coming, even as we await the the celebration of the birth of Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to receive him well. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and speaking in us, and we choose to, to prepare and welcome you. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you grace. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is the official end of our service. Let's be the, let's be the humble to whom the Lord can give grace and not the proud which he, much, which he must oppose. Amen. Amen.